Hello, welcome to episode 15 of what some will call Lies and Reruns. I'm Mike Lawson. I used to have a weekly storytelling podcast, and now I'm sharing those stories with you here on the Afterthought Media feed. Hello! Uh, On this episode, I have uh, one story I want to share with you called The Statement, which is about some Republican dude in my past. Uh, But before that, I want to play for you a story that I called Through the Looking Glass. Now, this was originally published on Tuesday, October 9th of 2012, uh, just one week after I published the story on last week's episode called The Autumn Wallace Club. And if you remember, that story was about a classmate of mine in the third grade who was brutally murdered. And uh, this story I want to start with today called Through the Looking Goss is actually about the relationship I have with the murderer. Uh, So here it is, Through the Looking Glass. Today I have a story to tell that's kind of peculiar and hard to understand. It plays with logic, and you might think that it's not grounded in reality, but it is. Hi, my name's Mike Lawson, and I tell what some will call lies. Um, I really love telling stories. I love, I love, I love telling, telling stories. What some would call lies. 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 Vomit. You lying son of a gun. Kind of creepy. Son of a bitch. Son of a, son of a, son of a bitch. He said, she said, I said, what the hell? Liar, liar, pants on fire. I love your dress. I'm not making this up. You are a goddamn liar. I'm back, bitches. (laughs) I love telling stories. This podcast is in no particular order, a collection of stories from my life that I retell as accurately as I see fit. I didn't just come out and say it. In fact... I hate to ruin the ending so soon, but I actually never said it. Sometimes you have experiences that are so unreal that you're not sure if they actually happened or if they were just dreams that occurred while you're sitting under a shady tree. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. On episode 47 of What Some Will Call Lies, I tell a story from my childhood. Previously on What Some Will Call Lies... (laughs) And today I'm going to breeze past some of the details, the important details really, and jump into a sort of continuation or conclusion of that story. So if you're not a normal What Some Would Call Lies listener, if this is your first time listening, you might want to check out episode 47 too. The short version of the story that I told last week is this. When I was nine years old, one of my classmates was home alone and a family friend came over and robbed the house and stabbed my nine-year-old classmate 57 times. I was put into therapy, I planted a tree, and like a fluke of nature, found myself in a California mission, Google stalking a story that hasn't changed in five years. And this Google stalking is exactly where I would like to start today's story. There are about five newspaper articles online about Autumn Wallace and her murderer, Rosie Alfaro, and the whole incident. A couple are from the local paper, the Orange County Register, a couple are from the Los Angeles Times, and then there's one or two from small sites about death penalty and women and death row and that sort of thing. I've read them all. In January of 2010, however, after Googling, I found a result that wasn't purple, an unvisited link. Something fresh. It was from a prison pen pal site. I clicked it, and I was given Rosie Alfaro's address in prison. 
the murderer who's sitting on death row for killing my classmate. I got her address, and I got tips on how to write to a prisoner. Start with background about yourself, your interests and hobbies. Avoid sharing too much personal information. Be upfront about your ability to write on a regular basis. If you're only able to write once a month, let that person know so they're not looking forward to a letter from you. If you're not looking for a romantic relationship, let them know that upfront. If you don't want any kind of sexual references or suggestive writings from the inmate, make it perfectly clear in the beginning. Ask questions. Show that you're interested in the person and not in the situation or the fact that he or she is in jail. Interested in the person and not the situation. Does that describe my interest? What was I after? Following a rabbit down the rabbit hole. What could possibly happen? This prison pen pal site was a little door that allowed me to glimpse into a curiously mysterious garden, but I couldn't fit. If I sent a letter that confronted Rosie, if I said, I was a friend of the child that you viciously murdered, I don't think that she would have responded, and I don't think that I would get too much out of that conversation either. Over coffee, my friend Julie asked a few questions. What are you looking to get out of writing to her? She asked. I certainly wasn't looking for an apology, and I don't know that I was looking for an explanation, either. I just accidentally fell upon the address, and I was so interested in finding out that this woman-slash-monster that has been in my thoughts for 21 years was actually a human. Why don't you mail her and just start a conversation, suggested Julie. You don't have to tell her that you have any connection to her crime. So that's what I did. I picked up the vial of shrinking potion that allowed me to force my I want to write Rosie Alfaro a letter idea through a little door. Curiouser and curiouser. Maybe I didn't do exactly what the prison pen pal site told me to do. Yes, I told Rosie that I had found her address and I wanted to chat. Yes, I told her that I wasn't interested in a romantic relationship. And yes, I started with my own personal background. But what I didn't do was come out with my intentions. I told her about every single job I had since I was 18 years old, starting with Disneyland. I told her about the neighborhood I grew up in, and I told her that I knew that she had grown up close by. I asked her questions about what she does to keep busy, and I very sympathetically conveyed that I hoped that my letters would give her something to keep her mind occupied. Who are you?
Rosie's first response took almost a month for me to receive. Part of the problem was that the address that I had found online was out of date. And I guess that the second thing that delayed the letter was that it was six pages long. Six notebook pages front and back. Dear Michael, I really appreciate your letter and look forward to writing to you. I'm not going to read the letter here. I've kind of gone back and forth. I think in an odd way that it would be violating her privacy. I already feel guilty about not presenting myself as a friend of her victim, so all I'm going to do is give you a little synopsis of the letter. Rosie mentioned that her lives have a lot in common. She told me that her mom worked at a place that I had worked at for a couple of years. She told me that yes, indeed, we did grow up in the same neighborhood, and although she's been in prison for 21 years, she believes that the neighborhood has cleaned up quite a bit and is now a bit safer. There was just one topic that I wanted to avoid. One, that Rosie had stabbed a child to death, a child that I had known, and I hadn't mentioned it at all in my first letter. I didn't even ask any questions that I had thought would make Rosie feel like she should mention the murder or her crime. And then on the fourth page of her six-page letter, Rosie hit a croquet ball right into my gut. I can't make any excuses for the mistakes that I've made that have led me here, she wrote. But I can say that drugs are a horrible thing that have forced me into some really dark situations. I found myself in wonderland Get back on my feet I can't make any excuses for the mistakes that I've made that have led me here. I kind of read that as an apology. An apology that I wasn't seeking. In fact, an apology that I was trying hard to avoid. Rosie is the queen with an unfair advantage on this croquet field. These mallets and balls are live flamingos and hedgehogs, and I have no chance of winning. At the end of every letter that Rosie has written me, and there have been five so far, she signs the letter and she gives it a little lipstick kiss. Her longest letter was 11 pages front and back. Her shortest was the first one that she sent, six pages. We talk about very normal things, what she's been up to, what I've been up to. She's shown me some of her poetry that she's written, mostly about missing her children. I've asked her about prison food. She's told me about her favorite school teacher from when she was a child. She doesn't like talking about politics, and I don't like talking about religion. And I don't know what will happen next. Maybe a Cheshire cat will show up on her head. Maybe she'll learn that I've been less than truthful about my relationship with Autumn, and maybe she'll get angry with me. Or... Maybe the Mad Hatter will appear, distracting her with a cake and a song about her unbirthday, and my case will be dismissed. Whatever happens, 
I already know how this story ends. Eventually, one day, I'll be startled awake, and the rosy Alfaro that I write to on death row will be gone. Okay, that was a little heavy, huh? Well, uh, up next is a story that's a little bit lighter. It's called The Statement. It's about a Republican dude. Um, I don't... I, I'm not I'm not listening to these. I'm kind of like trying to use my memory to retell, you, retell details that are important before I play them. Uh, but also the story is like there, so I don't have to retell it. However, I will add some, some tea to this uh, by letting you know that the... Republican man who's running for office in the following story uh, now serves... By the way, I changed his name, so you're not going to be able to search him too easily. But he now is uh, in office in San Diego as a Democrat. So (laughs) that changes the story a little bit. Uh, But here it is. The story is called uh, The Statement... And it was originally published on Tuesday, October 23rd of 2012. Here you go. I hate to start this way, but I have to make a quick statement about today's story. Even though the name of this podcast has the word lies in the title, those lies generally refer to the ornate details I add to fill in the gaps that time creates on memory. Was I six or was I seven? It doesn't really matter. Was it a Tuesday or a Wednesday? Just pick one and move on with the story. Today's story, however, took place not too long ago. This is a story that time hasn't yet taken a hold of and had its way with. Yet this story will contain the most lies of any story I've ever told on this show, primarily to protect the identity of somebody involved. Episode 43, I give the backstory on when I used to write for a political website in Orange County, California. The short version is this. After leaving a job at a newspaper, I missed staying up to date with local political stories, so I created a blog to be my outlet. After adding a team of writers, we started to get taken seriously by the local press, and that's where this story starts today. In a heavily Democratic State Assembly district, the state assemblyman turned out and it was time for some fresh blood. The man picked by the establishment to fill the seat was a man named Fernando Venezuela, which isn't his real name, but it's the name I'll use to make this story more difficult to figure out using the Google. Venezuela was the Democratic candidate, which, in short, in this district, meant that he was the new assemblyman. This is a district that is so left-leaning that sometimes a Republican candidate wouldn't even get enough signatures to appear on the ballot. On this go, however, a young Republican popped up out of nowhere, a guy named William Jean. He had a great website, he had a youthful approach to campaigning, 
and he had a one in a million shot. Anytime that I wrote about this race, I liked to make a statement about the absurdity of William and his campaign. I often said things like, waste of time candidacy, or a steak dinner would be a better use of the money he's spending. And once I said that he reminded me of Michael J. Fox's character from Family Ties, plus 10 pounds and minus the bucket of potential. I was at the Azteca Bar on Main Street in Garden Grove. You know, that Mexican restaurant slash bar that has all of the Elvis memorabilia. <laughs> I was hanging out with a few of my political friends talking about a Garden Grove City Councilwoman and the rumors we had heard about her interest in running for an upcoming vacancy on the Orange County Board of Supervisors. My buddy Phil's cell phone rang and he answered it at the table. I could only hear one side of the conversation, but it went something like this. Hey. Yeah, we're at Azteca. You should come out. Well, it's me and Art and Mike Lawson. People always call me Mike Lawson, by the way. I think part of this has to do with the fact that there are so many Mikes in the world and the clarification is necessary. But maybe this also has to do with the one-syllable first name, Mike. Does this happen to guys named Matt, John, Mark, Paul? Or is this just a thing that happens to Mike? Or is it just a thing that happens to me? <clears throat> Well, me and Art and Mike Lawson for now. Yeah, yeah, Mike Lawson's here. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I won't let him leave until you get here. Phil hung up the phone and said that somebody really wanted to talk to me. Who was it, I asked. Don't worry, he said. He'll be here in ten minutes. When William Jean walked into the bar, he smiled and shook my hand. He was polite and even friendly. I was kind of waiting for an argument or at least a small confrontation. I had been kind of mean and made a very strong statement against his candidacy. But he was nice. William jumped into the conversation we were having about the Garden Grove City Councilwoman and he said, rather prophetically, she's gonna run and she's gonna win. And in fact, she did both of those things a few months later. So admit it, I said a few drinks in. You know you have no chance of winning, right? I'm not an aggressive reporter type, but if I have an orange fall into my lap, I'm going to try to squeeze some juice out of it. He gave me some rehearsed line that he had probably been using as he canvassed neighborhoods in the highly Hispanic, very anti-Republican district. I'm optimistic, he told me. Optimistic that your name's gonna start to get recognized? I asked, hoping to get some sort of statement. He smiled and took another drink without breaking eye contact. At one point in the evening, we found ourselves outside. Some of the guys were smoking. William and I both don't smoke but we went anyway. Our friends were getting loud and obnoxious, but William stood really close to me and just talked to me. If I didn't know any better, he was hitting on me. So, he said, I wanted to ask you a question about something I read on your website. 
I remember reading something about a Michael J. Fox character from Family Ties plus 10 pounds and minus the bucket of potential. Okay, I'm very good at arguing via written word. I can make my case in an email. I can so accurately articulate my feelings if you let me do it through a keyboard. But face to face in a spoken way with confrontation, I struggle. So I responded to this verbal confrontation. Well, I said, maybe 10 pounds was excessive. Before leaving the bar that night, William gave me his phone number. He told me that we should hang out and he started text messaging me quite a bit. He eventually lost his election, not a surprise, and he eventually came out of the closet to me, not a surprise either. But his coming out was not traditional, not direct. He did it in a very young politician sort of way. He never actually said the words, I am gay. What he said in a Facebook message was, I don't know why you're single. I would totally date you. Which I guess could be, if necessary, construed to just be a compliment given by a straight guy. Not exactly a statement of coming out. A few months after the election, I decided to pack up my life and move to Phoenix. And William sent me a text message when he heard the news. Heard you're moving, but I never got to take you out on that date, I promised. He wrote, We went and saw a movie... Then we ate dinner at this place in Orange that only serves appetizers, so you have to order like five appetizers and you have to share. And of course I turned the meal into something political. So these three appetizers that we're forced to share, I said, should you be able to eat more of the egg roll just because the waitress put them closer to your elbow? Or should we, since we're both sitting at this table, split the egg rolls two and two? William's political career isn't dead. He's moved away from Orange County and he now lives in a pretty progressive place where he is still involved. Living where he does has allowed him to stay pretty socially progressive. So he's a vocal supporter of marriage equality and other LGBT issues, but he still holds on to some of his more conservative ideals. And socially progressive or not, he does still live in the closet. He's never been able to publicly make that statement. That's it. All done. Two stories shared. Um, And believe it or not, if you come back next week, I have two more for you. One of them is called Cold Turkey, and it's about a really shitty boyfriend I had in my early 20s. And another is called Home, and it's about finding uh, my first place of residence in Oakland, California. 
kind of a story written in real time. Uh, So come back next week for those two stories. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, See you then. I like to eat pizza.